our, our first point, the problem with the gods. So I'm going to read this passage. Um, this is from, oh, this is from Acts. I, didn't, I don't have the reference here. This is from Acts 17. Um, let me read this, and this is going to set the stage for the rest of the lesson. All who, I'm sorry, this is from Isaiah, not, not Acts. This is from Isaiah. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, the craftsmen are only human. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it out with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. Let me read that again. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I also roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? What is this lie in this craftsman's right hand? It is an idol, a god that he formed with his own hand. And the passage, it talks about the absurdity of what he's doing. You take a block of wood and half of it you make into an idol that you're going to fall down and worship. With the other half, you burn it up to cook your dinner with. Do you get what's going on? This is what the passage is saying. We all come up with our own concept, our own idea of God. And we do that because in our minds, we can only create what makes sense to us. But what if there was a God who who transcends our understanding? This is the God that we've been talking about. Um, this passage that we read is in the Old Testament. We're going to move on to the New Testament. There is another passage about very similar, very similar in concept, which is uh, there are these these silversmiths who make um, these religious artifacts. So I'm going to read. Actually, can I have someone read this paragraph? Any volunteers for Acts 19? Turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God, 
there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnific- magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Hebrews. Thank you. What's going on, going on here is that the Apostle Paul, he's spreading the gospel to the region, to the area. And these guys who make their living creating these religious artifacts here in verse 24, it says, Silver Shrines of Artemis. They, they made their living doing this. And they said, you know what? This, this Paul guy, he's preaching something that is really messing up our business. He's preaching that there is no other God other than Yahweh, the I Am. And if that's true, if people really believe what this guy is saying, that means that our business is threatened. Notice what they, he, they say here in verse 27. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship. So Artemis, this great god of this, of these people, her, they say, if people don't worship her, then what? Her magnificence is gone. Her, she, her, her reputation falls apart. What does that mean? That this goddess Artemis is dependent on the worship of other people to, to exist, for her to be the god that, that she really is. Let me say that again. This god Artemis was dependent on the worship of people. She needed people to be God. Sometimes we think of God that way. We may not know that we think of God that way. But this is very common because we think, well, God is God. We're, if he tells us to worship him or serve him, then we've got to do that because somehow we're doing a favor by worshiping God or serving God. Is that true? It makes sense to our human minds. Let me give you a few more examples of in history of uh, uh, examples of gods that needed other things to exist. Um, in the, uh, if you guys have studied humanities, um, there is the Babylonian myth Anuma Elish. I don't know if you guys. I, I remember hearing about this a long, long time ago in in college. Um, there is a god by the name of Marduk, and Marduk he. He confers with the other gods and he says, you know what, other gods, we need to create human beings because that means that we can live off the their work. It means that they can be our slaves, they can serve us, and then we can relax, and then we can just enjoy being the gods that we are. Um, that's Marduk in the uh, ancient Babylonian times. Uh, in Platonism, we have, uh, we have this philosophy that says that the world, the universe exists just because God needs it to exist. Uh, God needs something to exist in order for him to rule uh, because if he doesn't have something to rule, then he, that means he's not God. There is a theology in certain Christian circles, I'm putting that in quotes, called process theology. And let me explain to you this, this type of theology. So it says that 
there are two poles in God. Number, there is first the primordial pole, which is this eternal, unchanging aspect of God, and it's, it's transcendent. And there is also the consequent pole, which is the consequent pole of God, which means that God, there are, there's an aspect of God that's temporal. It's always changing. And that change is depending on how people respond, how people interact with God. So in order for God to become this transcendent, unchanging God, he's dependent on the worship of human beings. He's dependent on the prayers of human beings. And this people actually entertain this idea of God. And it's bad. It's real bad, Michael Jackson. It's real mad. Joe Jackson, that's a Kanye reference. Um, it's this this is a this is a type of thinking that people take seriously and this is super terrible super unbiblical uh process theology but in our own minds do we sometimes think that well we exist because there's something that god needs from us didn't god create us to worship him he needs us to worship him right is that true well uh let's move on we have a on page uh uh, on the other side of the page, what I'm going to assert for the next few moments is this. I'm going to reiterate the Westminster Confession of Faith again. Uh, we, we went over part of this last week. It says, God has all life, glory, and goodness, and blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone. He is the alone fountain of all being. Let me point out what I have in bold uh, on the third line. God does not derive any glory from his creatures. We talk about glorifying God. When we sing in, in service really loud, does God need that? Is God more glorified? Is God more God when we do that? What the Westminster Confession of Faith says, and also the Bible, is that God does not need a single thing from any of us. He does not need a single thing from nature. It means that nothing is necessary. And this is the word I'm going to rip on for a a good part of the lesson. What is necessary for God to be God? Let's take ourselves, for example. Uh, my son stayed up the entire night, and uh, I got, Christine and I got maybe uh, two hours of sleep. She's not here because um, she still has to take care of the baby. Um, I'm, I have no energy in me right now. I have, uh, someone gave me this small um, caffeine shot called Stoke. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's like super concentrated caffeine, and I brought it just in case because I wasn't sure I could make it through the morning. Um, for sleep is necessary for me and for you. Uh, there are so many other things that are necessary for me to be alive, for me to be here. I need clothes to wear. I need food in the morning. I need to take care of my business in the bathroom. This is These are all things I need to do. But for God, there is nothing that is necessary. God is God alone. This goes back to God the I am. What do I need from you, man? I don't need anything from you because I am who I am. Nothing ever threatens the godness of God. So let's go further. That means that God has no necessary relation to anyone. Can I have um, someone read Psalm 50, please? Tracy. For every beast of the forest is mine, cattle on a thousand hills. I 
kill all the birds of the field, and all that move in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. All right. Here God is talking to people and he's he's saying it's it sounds he's like having a conversation like you know if I were thirsty or hungry um I'm not going to let you guys know because you guys just aren't going to be able to help me out anyways God is there's a there's sarcasm in what God is saying here if I were hungry I would not tell you why because I own everything that exists and God is rebuking the people that he's speaking to because they're thinking of God in terms that they as humans can understand. God needs something. Something is necessary for God, meaning maybe he needs food. Maybe he needs some maybe he needs us to build a great church for him. God says, "I don't need that from you at all. I don't need that from you." God can't be hungry. God God we and God says he rebukes human beings for referencing God in the same frame of reference that we think of other people in. Again, I said last week, God is not a better version of us. He is not a greater version of us. He is completely different from us. We cannot understand God apart from his word. We go on in, seven, in Acts 7.48. Can I have uh, someone read it, please? Thank you. I'm sorry. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would uh, will you build build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? All right, thanks, Maggie. Can you also, since you were started already, can you read Acts 17 as well? The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All right, thank you. God has no necessary relation to anyone, meaning God again he echoes something similar in Acts, which he which he said in Psalms, which is. Um, you think that you can help me out. You think that you can give me a place to, to live. You can't do that. Uh, everything that everything that you have, I give to you. If you guys, uh, I know some of you guys are C.S. Lewis fans. He has this example in, I forget which, it might be Mere Christianity. Um, he, he gives the example of a boy who goes up to his father and he, he, and he asks his father for a sixpence, a British coin, so that he can buy something for his father. And the father's delighted that his son would do that. And his son goes and buys it for his father. And the son thinks that he's done something for his father. In reality, the son has done nothing for his father because his father is the one who provided the money to buy that gift. In the same way, God is saying, if whatever you can do for me, it's only because I give you the facilities and the power to do that. You can't do anything apart from me. Uh, in Revelation 4.11, it says this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created created and have their being. We exist by the will of God, and for those of us who, who have... Who, for those of us who follow Jesus, if we are saved, it's because God in His will has decided to save us. We didn't 
we didn't pray hard enough or there wasn't someone that prayed hard enough for us so that we would accept Christ. We did not come to our senses and, and go, oh, it finally makes sense and I'll, I'll accept Christ. Or we might say, um, you know, God has been really good to me, so um, I think that I should just give my life to him now. That's what I'm going to do. And God says, no, it's if I show mercy to who I show mercy to. Your prayers don't do it. Your devotion cannot save you. God and God alone can save us. Salvation belongs to our God in Revelation. So God receives worship from his creatures, but God does not depend on that worship. And he does not... he receives worship, but and but he does not receive service. God does not receive service. So, what do I mean by that? If you guys have heard that we should serve God, we should serve God, and those phrases are in the Bible. But when we think of serving God, we think uh, in ter- in very human terms. When I say I want to serve God, I might be thinking, well, I want to serve God because there's some deficiency in God. God needs something in me. When we serve other people, that's the case. When I serve my wife or when there are waiters that come and serve me at the restaurant, it's because I, as a human being, need something. Um, So we think, okay, well, serve God. That means that he needs me to do something for him, doesn't it? There is another type of service in the Christian life that completely rearranges our way of thinking. And it's in... If you look at, if you have read this verse in Matthew, it says, For no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or you cannot serve God and money. Have you guys ever thought about what it means to serve money? Do we set a pile of cash on the table and bow down to it? Do we pray to money? No, what do we do? How do we serve money? is we work with our might to obtain money so that it would give us the type of life that we want, so that we would be blessed somehow by the money. We serve God. We, we, the proper way to serve God is to say to God, I'm going to do these things, but it's only because it gives me more of you. I'm going to do these things because it means that my capacity to love you is enlarged. This is what Christian service is. It's not us emptying ourselves so that God will be filled. It's us emptying ourselves so that God will fill us with himself more. This is Christian service. So God, our relationship to God is, God is the one that serves us. And if you guys have noticed in our service, we always say God is initiating the service. When we take communion, God is feeding us. When we listen to the sermon, God is feeding us. When we when we receive the benediction, it's God blessing us. And and this the leaders, we try to make it a point that we are always, always, always served by God. Because that's the only way the Christian life can be lived. We cannot live it on our own strength. God is serving us always. He's filling us with himself. There is a quote by A.W. Tozer, uh, and this is what he says. We're all humans. We're all human beings suddenly to become blind. Still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their lights. So were every man on earth to become an atheist, it would not affect God in any way. He is what he is in, him, in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. You guys have heard the 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 line um, uh, 
the the blind man who writes dark or the the man who's stuck in a tower. I'm I'm totally butchering this. You guys may be able to help me. The the man who's stuck in the tower, uh, imprisoned in the tower, can no more blot out the sun by writing darkness. We cannot. We, the, the sun will exist whether or not we acknowledge the sun exists, and God exists even if there wasn't a single person in the world that believed in him. And if there wasn't a single person in the world that ever prayed to God, God would still be completely full and happy and fully God. Let me, um, before I go on, let me open it up for any questions or comments. Okay. We'll have some time for questions after this. Um, so let's go on to our next next. Um, Point, what is God's primary identity? So who is God? We always talk about who we are. Who, we always talk about our, our identity. So um, let's say, for example, uh, Andrew. Andrew is an employee. In order for Andrew to be an employee, he requires an employer. He cannot be an employee without an employer. Or he cannot be a son without a father or mother. Or Andrew cannot be a boyfriend with, without having a girlfriend. He exists. His identity is always it's it's always in reference to other things, right? And you can say the same for yourself. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a pastor. But I am only those things because there are other things, other people in my life. What about God? What does God depend on? So I have a few. Uh, I have three um, three possibilities. Is God's primary identity a creator? Let's think about that. If God were primarily a creator, that would mean what? That there needs to be creation to define God. That would mean that for God to have a purpose, there needs to be the universe. So is God's primary identity that of a creator? And I'm going to say no. Is God's primary identity as a ruler? We think of God ruling the world. Is God's primary identity as a ruler? What do you need to be a ruler? You need a kingdom. You need subjects to rule. If God's primary identity was to be a ruler, that would mean that he's dependent on the existence of subjects and a kingdom to rule in order for him to be a ruler. Is God a lawgiver? Is the, is the world, is the universe run by a set of laws? Is that the primary thing that defines God? If that were the case, that would mean that he would need people to keep those laws. It would mean that he would need the, the laws of physics and, and uh, chemistry and everything else in order for God to be primarily a lawgiver. And his well-being is based on whether or not we can keep the law or if other things can keep the law. In Islam, uh, there are the 99 names of God, and one of the names of God, one of his, the, the attributes of God is, they, they call him the loving, the loving. And that sounds really great. But if there were no creation before creation existed, if if, if Allah, the, is, the God of the, of the Muslims, excuse me, how could he be a loving God if he had nothing to love. We need to think about that for ourselves as well. If we say that God is a loving God, we have to think about, well, if God doesn't need us, if he doesn't have us as objects to love, 
how can God still be a loving God? Aristotle, he was a uh, the thinker, the philosopher in the 4th century B.C. And he, he tried to answer the question, and he, he, he said, well, in order for God to be a good and loving God, then this a, a good and loving being requires an object to love and to be good to. So his response, his answer was, well, that means that uh, he must love or he must be good to the universe. So that means the universe has always existed. But how can that be? The, the universe had to have a starting point. There had to be a point in which the, the universe came to be. We say that God never had a starting point. So if he is a loving God, how can he, what did he love before creation? And this is my fav- one of my favorite things to talk about in terms of theology is the Trinity, the Trinity. And this is going to answer a whole lot of questions about self-sufficiency. It's going to answer a whole lot of questions about self-existence. So what was God doing before the world? Who wants to read John 17 for me? This one line. Someone at this table. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? Before anything existed, God was loving his, the Son. God was loving the Son. That means that also the Son never had an origin. The Son has always exist, existed as part of the Trinity. And let me throw in there the Holy Spirit. So, this is how we can say that God is a loving God. What is God's primary role it's that of a father because as a father, he has always lo- he, was, he has always loved his son. Isaiah 63, for you are our father. You, O Lord, are our father. We see this repeated in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. The primary identity of God in the scriptures is that of father. Uh, that means that there had to be an object for him to love, which is the son, which is the Holy Spirit. And that is really good news for us because it means that God's love isn't dependent on how we react or respond. Can I have someone read um, Matthew 3, please? Let me have uh, a lady read Matthew 3. Let me put someone here at this table. Thanks. All right. This is the quintessential scene. This is the quintessential um, meeting of the figures of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirits. And God looks upon his son and he says, as he has been saying throughout eternity, I delight in my son. I am well pleased in my son. God's love for his son has been for uh, for all eternity. And this means that um, that God truly is a God of love. God, if we say that, we always talk about the love of God. How can we say that? It's because of the unity. God doesn't need us for God, for Him to be loving. Let me say it again. God doesn't need us for God to be loving. Isn't that amazing? And I'll I'll talk about the implications in just a second. But uh, in First John it says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
The love of God has overflowed into the world. This is what First John is saying. The love of God was made manifest through Jesus the Son. We have life because God is fully self-sufficient. So let me move on. The Actually, let me stop for questions or comments before we move on. Does it kind of make sense? Um, this, this is unique. As far as I know, this is unique to every other worldview or religion. There's no concept of Trinity um, elsewhere. Uh, let me throw in a little, fact, uh, little fun fact. Um, people ask, well... If the son, father and son, if they were loving each other for all eternity, um, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? And um, I love this answer. Uh, it's this. You know, it, have you guys ever been around people who are just uh, two people in love, and it's just really disgusting because they're just there's all that PDA and <laughs> it, it's, it's like you see what they write on Facebook. They post pictures of each other on Facebook. It's 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 really cute and it's really beautiful at times. Um, but there, within that, there, like, you, you, we all know couples who, um, once they found this person that they they really like, they kind of push other people out of their lives, um, and it kind of stays that way, and it stinks for the people around them, um, because theirs is a self infatuation. There is a selfishness to their love. They're saying, uh, the object of my desire, the object of my love, I want to keep to myself. The relationship, I want to keep to myself. In the Trinity, the Father and Son love each other, but they also share the love with the Spirit. There is community within the Trinity. The love overflows. The, the All three figures of the Godhead, there, there's love going... I don't know. I'm using my hands. I don't even know how to start doing this. But there's this love happening in the, in the Trinity that is shared, that's communal. Um, that's a beautiful thing. Okay, so let's continue talking about that beautiful thing. God is an exuberant God. Can I have someone read Hebrews 1-3, please? Can I have Kyle? Can you read that, please? Yeah. Uh, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right. So, the radiance of the glory of God... What does that imply? That God radiates something, right? It implies that God, there, there's something flowing out of God. Um, there's so much goodness and glory and love. And who is this? the exact imprint of his nature? It's Jesus, right? Jesus. Now let me, I'm going to throw some Greek on you guys. have the words on the sheet as well. Have you guys heard this word before? Hypostasis. In Greek it's upastasis, I think. Is that right, Eric? Upastasis. And it's basically um, hypostasis. I'm just going to say hypostasis for our Western ears. Um, this refers to the being, the being of God. So here in Hebrews it says that the 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 um, 
exact imprint of God's being, which is Jesus, he's been radiated. It's, it's been spread out into the universe. And I have this phrase here, hypostasis in ecstasis. Okay, who can guess at what ecstasis means or the English word that we use nowadays? Ecstasy, yes. And he's ecstasy. <laughs> is that right? Ecstasy. Do you, how often do we hear this word in church? Ecstasy. Um, we might hear it in reference to drugs or whatnot. But that's a beautiful word because in that word, when we hear ecstasy, it's there's something joyful and ebullient and outpouring. The the being of God, the, the whatever God is, is being poured out into the universe. Creation exists because God is an ecstatic God. Something comes out of who God is. So it means that God is, he has this outgoing, loving, life-giving, uh, he, this is what he is as a being, and the triune God, the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it spills out, it spills out, and life comes from the Trinity, creation, all the, the whole universe is a result of the love of the Trinity spilling out into the worlds. And also we see this on the cross as well. Just as God gave life to the universe, he also gives life on the cross, except he had to take his son's life to give us life. It means that central to the identity of God as a father is that he is a life-giving, loving God. So the Son, Jesus, images the Father by sharing his life with us through the Holy Spirit. If you guys read Romans 8, life through the Spirit, what does that look like? Uh, we all have life through the Spirit. Spirit is, the the word Spirit is, um, in Latin and Greek, It's uh, the base word is breath or life. When we say that someone has a lot of Spirit, we mean they have a lot of life. Um, when we say that we as believers have life in the Spirit, it really means that we have life in the true source, the true foundation of life. So God is an exuberant God. That means, let's go on to Acts 17. I believe um, Maggie read this already, but so I'm not going to go over it. But it means that God did not create out of deficiency. You may have heard this phrase before, that God created the world because he was lonely. Have you guys ever heard that? Because he needed someone to fellowship with. Because he needed someone to worship him, because he needed someone to love, the Trinity answers that question. God had that for all eternity. That means that he did not create us out of necessity. God is f- completely self-sufficient in that way. God is not lonely. He, is, he does not need your fellowship. But the implication is that God really wants our fellowship. Because he doesn't... He's not an insecure God. We all know people that are insecure, and they, they'll show us affection, but it's really because we know that they want something from us, right? God isn't like that. God says, I'm complete in myself. I have everything in myself. And by inviting you to worship me, to love me, I'm, I'm inviting you into true life. Uh, for the sake of time, um, I'm going to not read all of John 17 again. But uh, the point I have here is this. Creation exists so that the love of the Father and the Son would be shared. Um, actually, let me pull out some verses from here. I'm just going to read the whole thing. There's my three-minute timer. 
Creation, uh, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Creation exists, you and I exist, so that the love of God would be spilled out on us. This is the only reason, this is a primary reason that you and I exist, is that so we would experience the love of God. It's not the uh, the insecure, worship me, I need you to worship me, I need you to pray with me, pray for me. It's, it's God saying, I am everything, I am the foundation, I, I am reality, I'm the foundation of all things, I don't need anything. But let me invite you into my ecstatic, loving, life-giving life. This is, this is the implication of self-sufficiency. It means, and, and we're going to move on um, in just a minute to we are not su- sufficient. But let me, um, let me point out this quote from Richard Sibbs, and I think he, he explains it well. He says, God's goodness is a communicative spreading goodness. If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. But that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation nor a redemption. God uses his creatures not for defect of power, that he can do nothing without them, but for the spreading of his goodness. This is Richard Sibbs, the 16th century Puritan, um, saying the same thing that I'm saying, but much more eloquently. He also, um, I don't have this on the sheet, but he also has this other quote. And I think this is, um, to me, a lot more evocative of what's the what it means for God to be loving. He says, God is the life-giving, warming sun who delights to spread his beams and influence in inferior beings, meaning us, to make all things fruitful. Such a goodness is in God as is in a fountain or in the breast that loves to ease itself of milk. Okay, so I've been a father for a few weeks now and I see my wife, Christine, feeding our son. And I don't know, for those who are mothers, uh, your breast fills with milk. I'm not trying to be uh, explicit or anything, but there is this life-giving nutrient for your for your child, and you start feel when it's it, the uh, the milk will collect and it, your breast might become engorged. You want to let it out. You want this source of life to be let out. And Richard Sibbs is saying, this is in one small, probably imperfect picture, the love of God. He has so much love to give. Has so much love to give. The self-sufficient God has so much love to give, and He's inviting us to have that love. That means creation is a wonderful, good thing. The Christian worldview says that the universe is good; physical things are good. Other worldviews and religions will say the create the universe was created through some struggle with the gods, or the Gnostics will say uh, the spiritual things, or I'm sorry, the the physical world, physical things are bad. The Christian worldview says, no, the universe is a beautiful, good thing. This is why we have colors. This is why we have music. This is why we have um, food that tastes good. There's absolutely no reason for food to taste good. There's no reason for um, for the music of Mozart or of fill-in-your-favorite artists to exist other than the fact that 
God is a beautiful, loving God, and it reflects the beauty and the love of God. Last point, we are not sufficient. So, um, 2 Corinthians, I'll let you guys read that on your own. Um, when we feel like we can't go on any further, when we feel like all our strength is gone, the invitation that God gives to us is this. I am your strength. I am everything that you need. Philippians, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we were not sufficient in ourselves, but the sufficiency that we have to do whatever we're called to do comes from God. And Romans, let's close with this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Again, this goes back to what is necessary for God to be God? Nothing, nothing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And this is why God tells us that he is self-sufficient. So that we would give him glory. So that in our lives we can say, I am not uh, what I want to be. But God is everything for me. The self-sufficiency of God. Um, let me point out resource that I'm using, and then I'll close. But any questions or comments before I close? Okay. A lot of the stuff I spoke about, I, I drew from this book, which is Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. This is the best book I've ever read on the Trinity. It came out a few years ago, Delighting in the Trinity. So if you have any, it's really easy too. He has um like pictures in here, a theology book with pictures. Um <laughs> I really, really recommend this book to you. At some point in the next two or three years, we're going to do another Sunday School series on the Trinity. And if you want to know exactly what I'm going to pull from, this is it. So um, I really recommend this to you. It's easy to read. Uh, he makes jokes in here. It's He's a good writer. Um, so I really commend this book to you guys. Um, it's not about the self-sufficiency of God, but a lot of the stuff that I talk about is from here. So um, commend it to you. Questions, comments? Okay, I will pray. Oh, Harry, did you raise your hand? Okay. Awesome. He was saying hi to someone. Yes. The first passage is in chapter 44. Yeah, Isaiah. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, she's referring to our first passage, um, the problem with the God. So that's Isaiah 44, you said, right? Okay, thank you. Let's pray. God, the self-sufficient God, the I am, the... Uh, the God who never needs anything from anyone or anything, God. We're so thankful that that's what you are because that means that everything that we could ever want comes only from you. Um, would you teach us? And as we go into worship with the rest of our church family, would you continue to uh, teach us? And may the fellowship here be sweet and may you be glorified. May we find our life and our joy in you alone, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.